At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm here with my very special friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Always good. What exactly do you mean by special? Special. Okay. So this is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about some board games today. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. But first, we're going to talk about the game that we reviewed last year. Then we're going to talk about board game news. See the theme here, Mark? Themes board games. Exciting, right? And then we're going to talk about our topic, which is... You entitled it The Subliminal Brainwash. The Subliminal Brainwash. Maybe I've been brainwashed, Mark. That's how it feels. So, in other swag news, we've got three videos out, Mark. we got more to come. We're working on streaming. We're working on all this stuff. We found that the, the limitation right now is our current technology, or more importantly, my current technology. Seeing as my you know free time was so cut back, I just let my computer go and now it's i'm paying the price so once we get that up and running we'll have a, a better stream of videos coming out and more streaming and more exciting stuff on the horizon mark i'm ready to be a multimedia mogul it's gonna be uh, it's, just, it's gonna be us and kanye west it's yeah i know it's it's gonna be the big push i can't wait so on to the yet retrospective unnamed some of those words were right. None of them were in the proper order. In the thing that we don't want to name because it's too funny. The as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus. Xenoshift, Mark. Yes. I know I've played it at least once. Yes. And, and it's mostly just been a time thing. After I, after I looked up to see what this was going to be, it was like, oh, man, we're going to pull this out next time, next time we play. Because with just two players, which I think is the optimal player count, you and I can get a game through in, you know, 30 to 45 minutes. Ooh, I don't know about that 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 quickly. I'm going to time it this time. Okay. <laughs> because th- that's the major thing. We still stand by it. We, we get do. a lot of flack we do. for our appreciation of Xenoshift. We're very much in the minority here, uh, especially amongst our listeners. I have played it since we reviewed it. I thoroughly enjoy it. It is probably my favorite co-op deck builder, if you exclude Mage Knight playing co-op, which isn't really much of a deck builder. Uh, Shadow Rift has definitely fallen down in the ranks of my steam. I find it very samey. The, the victory conditions aren't balanced, but Xenoshift I find consistently satisfying, if a tad over long. And I would just like to note that my enthusiasm for Xenoshift is such that during the Simon Time Machine Kickstarter, I pledged for all the remaining Xenoshift stuff that I didn't have, because I didn't pledge for the first Xenoshift Kickstarter, I only showed up for Dreadmire. I have that stuff. I mean, I own that stuff. I mean, I don't possess that stuff. It's in a box in New York across a border that's closed, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. That being said, on on Kickstarter right now, there's like sort of a fantasy version. At least, well, I think it's very similar. It's a, We talked about it. It's called Here I Stand. No. <laughs> Here I Stand is a slightly different no, game. No, You're no. thinking of Set a Watch. Set a Watch. Sorry. I meant it to, really I meant doesn't to look like here. Xenoshift to me at all. No, no. It's, it's what I mean. The, well, the one thing that's the same is that I think there's going to be, uh, in fact, not, I think, I know there is a line of enemies. Yes. And I know they're going to have certain abilities where they are on that line. And it's a game with cards, so it's fundamentally made. No. And you get, and your abilities are going to uh, dictate how you attack that particular line and in the order that you get attacked in. So in that way, the attack phase is much like Xenoshift's attack phase. 
And sure. you don't you don't so much deck build as you tableau build. You have this, you know, little tableau and you get to put weapons in and all sorts of stuff. Well, then L- maybe, a little bit like me. Maybe you should try set a watch then if, if like oh, yeah. well, if you're convinced that it's so similar. And I have to look into it a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> so first you would just like to opine about how it's fundamentally similar despite not knowing. Exactly. Understood. Well, I know that part. I read that far. Okay. I just need to, you know, there's a lot coming out on Kickstarter this month, Mark. It is a big month, October. I'm getting kind of scared. I've I've pre-called the bank to prepare them. <laughs> and so that is Xenoshift, Onslaught, and Dreadmire mostly, and some other ramblings. On to the games we played last week. I got to play Assault on Doomrock, specifically with the Doompocalypse expansion. Dewey had been asking for it for quite some time. And we got together, and we played, and we were brutally massacred in the first fight, because that's how Doomrock rolls. And I just want to stress the Doompocalypse bit, because again, we're very much in the minority, or at least I am, in terms of very much appreciating the Doompocalypse terrain system. Seeing a lot of people show up to talk about the possibility of the Doomrock Ultimate version, which we've talked about in the past, which Tom Stasiak has been openly mooting on BoardGameGeek, nothing is official yet. He's talked about simplifying the train system, and a lot of people say, absolutely, the train system is a little bit too cumbersome. And I disagree, I quite like it. It is cumbersome, it is not low barrier to entry, but I quite appreciate the little nuances and little bit, little moments that it adds. Just as an example, in our game of Doompocalypse, we were fighting armored skeletons, and what happened was our last surviving party member, a paladin, basically blasted away a, a skeleton which then stumbled over a nearby stool. And then the skeleton got up, picked up the stool, threw it at the paladin's face, and then charged the paladin and killed him. And the reason why the paladin died was because of actually the hit to the face of the stool. So, <laughs> you know, epic fantasy. Classic, classic fantasy. It's a classic scenario, hit in the face with a yeah. stool from an armored skeleton. It's just it's just the way things go. Using random bar stuff when you're not supposed to. That's the problem. Disregard for other people's property, Mark. That's very unpaladin-like. Actually, it was a stool just lying around in a field. There was a donkey, which was ours, carrying our stuff. Uh, there was a nervous sheep, and there was a stool. So I have to assume that this was some sort of farm-type environment where there was a stool possibly for milking or sharing yeah, purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not agrarian. What do I? I can't comment. But we had a great time, even though we got our, our faces caved in. And it was one of those things where, really, we were able to look at it and say, these are the things we did wrong. We made a couple of fundamental errors, and next time we'll know better. And it's not that it was incredibly arbitrary or some sort of weird take-that event. It's just that Doomrock is brutally hard, which is absolutely what we like out of our co-ops. And as I've mentioned, I'm very enthusiastic for any possible future content, although I there's lots to be enjoyed right now. And that was our further experiences with Assault on Doomrock, specifically the Doompocalypse expansion. You and I got to play Alma Mater again. This is put out by Eggerspiel. I think it played fairly similar to the first time we played it. We had commented on how we like the bartering system and how you bought books and sold books. I think the end of the game, I don't know how you feel about it, I think the end of the game felt a little bit differently because in the first game we sort of held back on putting out our own books to try to limit the market. This time I think all the books were there, but we had some sort of book generation from other sources. So we didn't buy books from other people, so we sort of we shorted the market in money. At least that's how it felt to me this time. It's the just the end game seemed a little bit different. The last couple turns we seemed more focused on getting you know, end game points than it was to manipulate the stock market like we did in the first game. Yes, it's one of those instances of a solid worker placement game with a couple of novel bits, not really playing to the novel bits perhaps as much as would be strictly appreciated. And I agree with you that the fluctuations of the market were different. That, I think, actually was a positive of the game, because it's not really much of a fluctuating market if it fluctuates the same way every time. And yes, this was a a comparatively cash-poor game for most of us. You were a bit of an exception. You had a lot of income-generating powers, and so you were able to, to, to use that very much to your advantage. I was a little disappointed when setting it up again to, to internalize something that I'd already known, but but to really have it come home to me, which is that the, the students are the same for every game. There's only a certain set of students. There's a mini expansion that we don't have access to that adds a small number of extra students. It's the professors and the chancellors where there's a lot of variety, but you don't use them as often. Or at least it doesn't feel to me like you use them as often. So going through and purchasing the students, which you do more frequently than you buy professors most of the time, and and there's going to be more of them in play, uh, that helped add to a kind of feeling of sameness. Now, the research track also, there's only one track, that's why I'm okay with it, differs as well. But it's just a, a, you know, rotating series of costs and thresholds and doesn't really add a significant amount to the uh, leaving one game to feel like another. So ultimately where I think, and you can disagree with me if you want, but where I am with Alma Mater is 
it joins a relatively crowded field of good, solid worker placement euros with a couple of novel bits. But those are kind of sort of a dime a dozen now. And I've enjoyed my play, and I would absolutely play it again. But I feel no need to keep it in the collection, despite the fact, as I say, it's got a lovely market mechanism. And those books are so adorable. Yeah, like I say, if you're just starting your collection now, like you don't have a vast collection of games, and this is a a solid, you know, addition to your your collection. Absolutely. And like you said, for the students, I think it sort of doubles down into the fact that there are some that are definitely less useful than others. So the sameness is, you know, is doubled down, right? Because really? there's some that you're definitely going to buy every, not necessarily that you're definitely going to buy, but some that you'll look over more often than others. Well, that's strange because one student in particular that I know you purchase soon as humanly possible, namely the one that gives discounts on other students, I have never purchased. True. But the one that, that manipulates the market, like changes the price of the books, get, almost never gets to you purchased. That could just be an instance of groupthink. You're right. There are some that are overlooked, but I'm not sure that that's because they're not as good. Maybe that's just because we're not being creative enough. Sure. I mean, it seems a little bit churlish to complain that the market mechanism wasn't exploited enough, but at the same time, we didn't buy the one that manipulated the market mechanism. So but, <laughs> maybe one problem solves another. If I another. reflect back at our game, it was always the cheapest book. You know what I mean? It was very... We very selectively bought books almost throughout the entire game. And if someone had manipulated the prices so they were more expensive, then I think I don't think anyone would have bought those books. It would, it would have been completely pointless. I don't know. I could conceive of a situation where you use the fact that the market mechanism dovetails with the purchase of points. Because if you make your uh, your cheapest book, quote unquote, the leftmost book, the book that has to be purchased first, if you make it more expensive, but it happens to give someone three points, they're probably just going to suck it up. Because an extra two bucks for three points is, is comparatively nothing. But then again, maybe it would have had a deleterious psychological effect and that would have further downplayed the importance of buying books from other people. Anyway, suffice to say that the buying and the selling of books is great. The rest of it, eh, pretty good most of the time, sometimes just forgettable. And so I, I, I like the output of Akitoka, which is the Italian collective that designed this, as well as Egizia, as well as Leonardo da Vinci, and as well as Coimbra, but I didn't like Coimbra. But I've yet to have anything where it really stood out, where it was really stellar. Like, Egizia, for me, is, is, is largely in the same category. Solid worker placement game with a twist. And so... Ultimately, not outstanding, but as you say, someone who's, who's just getting into medium-heavy worker placement euros, you can certainly do a heck of a lot worse. Agreed. And that is Alma Mater. I also like the theme. Theme's nice. Books theme. are beautiful. The books are beautiful. I like the theme. So the Spiritual Society for Murderous Anti-Colonialism, or SMAC, once again convened and played another game of Spirit Island Jagged Earth. We are burning through all the available content. And I just want to point out, and this is going to come up later when we have our topic, the framing of a game matters a great deal. I'm not talking here about the framing of the game that the designer, the developers, and the publishers offer, although that, of course, is very, very important. But the framing of a game in terms of running a game, of setting up the game, of determining the parameters of the game in terms of selection of scenario, of player powers, of setup, etc., etc. And I have to say that the pressures, the internal pressures of Smack are bringing Spirit Island to an unfortunate place. And that place is three-hour games where most of the system management is taken care of by half the table and the other half of the table does not. And that's largely because there is a desire on the part of some members of Smack to continuously increase the difficulty, while at the same time, everyone wants to try new spirits, whereas I want to return to previous spirits on occasion. And so what we had in this particular session, just to make, make it perfectly clear, was we had ramped up the difficulty, and I went back to a medium complexity spirit that I had played before, and everyone else was playing high or very high complexity spirits that they had not played before. And as a result, it was a three-hour game where I was not in it for all of it. And so in short, it was a very good experience and the worst play of Spirit Island I've had in quite some time. Which is to say, I would absolutely repeat it, but I think I would want to try to either find some way to make sure that everyone else helps run the system so it's not just the same people all the time. But this is a perennial problem that I've had in board gaming for a very, very long time. And so I think the people who want the difficulty to to go up need to step up and start running the more complicated adversaries. And when the difficulty is ramping up, I absolutely should not take a spirit that is simpler and that I have experience with. So my turns are, are easily done and I'm sitting around waiting for other people to figure it out. Not that they were taking too long, 
they were managing with the complexities of their own systems. I'm just saying that there was a disconnect and a mismatch such that I need to uh, adjust that for future gatherings of Smack. But again, even at its worst, and I've commented on this in the review, even at its worst, when either it's a raffle stomp or you're absolutely crushed or you're just grappling with the system, the systems itself of Spirit Island and the card management and the powers and the evolution in managing your growth is so brilliantly done that it helps smooth over any of these possible difficulties. But I would like to have future plays play more to the strength. I had considered playing a very high-complexity spirit in the context of this session, just so I'd have something to grapple with. I ended up going for Grinning Trickster Stirs Up Trouble Again, who, by the end of the play, had morphed into Cunning Predator Grins Wickedly. But that was a mistake. Not because I didn't enjoy the spirit. I love that spirit. It's great. Covered the land in beasts, and the beasts ate all kinds of colonialists. It was wonderful. But in future, I think I'm going to have to up the complexity for me and or make sure that I spend less of the time having to deal with systems for the sake of everybody else. So I'm not just sitting there twiddling my thumbs for for vast stretches because Spirit Island is great and I'm willing to play Spirit Island as a three-hour game, just not when I'm not doing anything for for large portions of that. So more of this to come later when we talk about uh, in, in the context of the topic because I think a lot of this will echo there. But that was Spirit Island, Jagged Earth. I finally got to play Marco Polo 2 in service of the con by Simone Luciani and Daniele Tacchini. And this is put out by Zedman Games. Now, I thought I had already talked to you about this. So like, so the first half of this Marco Polo 2, I was saying, oh my God, this is so much better than the first Marco Polo. I'm having so much more fun. And then I just, you know, sort of sat back and realized what's happening. There's just so much less player interaction. Because even though the first Marco Polo is sort of a race to get to Beijing, and then well, and of, all the cities on the on the way, there are well, I'm, I'm saying it's like it's, yeah. like it's sort of like planning your path to get to Beijing, and yes. then after that, you sort of you may have afterthoughts, but that's pretty well what it is. In Marco Polo two, they sort of done away with that, and you're sort of just trying to get all over the place because you're trying to collect these crests, and there's a interesting. I'm not saying this is a bad game or anything else, but I think, and I definitely think they've done enough to make it completely different. Not, no, sorry, not completely different, just different significantly, and, significantly different. different. And But I think they've just taken away all player interaction that there could be. There's just so many more spaces to go. There's there's not the clogging up of, you know, the resource areas. You know, they've made traveling and resources so much easier to get. They've had another resource, Jade, and they made the player, uh, the player powers even more outrageous for traveling. So anyway, that being said... Loved Marco Polo 2, Service of the Con, but would definitely play the first one instead. I agree. I feel that the looseness and the abundance of resources further cuts down on the player interaction in terms of dice placement as well. It's not purposive blocking. You know, you're not taking those three wood because you know your neighbor desperately needs the three wood in the case of Agricola, which I think is still one of the better worker placement games for blocking purposes. But it is still the case that money is so tight that if... You, somebody else shows up at that movement space before you do, those extra two or three dollars in order to place your dice there might be the difference between you getting what you need and you not getting what you need. And so it really amps the tension of what you're going to do with your dice on top of all those other elements. I agree with you that Marco Polo 2 is interesting in a lot of ways. And I absolutely agree that if you felt that Marco Polo was a little too punishing, you felt that resources were a little too scarce, then you should probably take a solid look at Marco Polo 2. But I prefer the original as well. That is Marco Polo 2, in service of the con. We get to play more Inhuman Conditions. This is a review copy we got a while ago, just before the onset of the pandemic, which kind of put a kibosh on our initial plans. And I've been wanting to return to it, but I personally, just just to give you a sense of of what the game is like, as we've said before, it's basically a two-player social deduction game reminiscent of the Voight test in Blade Runner, where where one person is an interviewer trying to discover whether or not the other person is a robot. And it's all about trying to avoid certain tells or trying to embed certain information subtly into what you're discussing, either as the interviewer or as the subject. But the thing that I've observed in a couple of instances now playing in Human Conditions, I will play in Human Conditions whenever. Because to me, it's a very, very delightful five minutes of intense deduction. But the thing is, it is intense. And what a lot of people uh, seem to uh, react, and certainly some people in my experience, but I've read about this as well, is... The sort of experience that you often find in intense games of discussion. That was great. Let's never do it again. And I haven't had any kind of that kind of violent reaction. But a couple people I've exposed to is like, it was really great. 
and you suggest it, and they're like, mm, I don't feel like it now. And sometimes one wonders whether they will ever feel like it ever again. And I was worried that that was going to be true of you because I'd brought in human conditions a couple of times and I'd suggested you say, I really want to play it again. I'm just not feeling it. And after a certain number of times, one starts to wonder whether that's not really ever going to be the case. No, I think it's just the, the no, I don't want to say brain power, but I just, I enjoy it. And to me, it's a role playing experience. Yes. It's a very improv type back and forth and i just wanted to give it i want to always give it my full brain power so if we I go see. through like a huge brain burner where i'm already sort of like reeling or it's like you know let's just do a cool off thing i don't want to get into something like that i want to give it you know my full attention because i i don't want to go you know gush over too much but it's just a really good game so what happened in our particular session just to give some context is i was the interviewer and i was querying walker on collaborative problem solving basically working together in groups and I felt he was being dodgy because he wouldn't talk about his feelings. And I took this to be the sign that he was a robot. And I accused him of being a robot. So I stamped the form and I sent him away for processing. Turns out that Michael Walker is not a robot. Or at least that's what the game says. Which maybe, maybe means the game is in on the play. Uh, and it's, it, could be, yeah, it could be a whole circular conspiracy. Who knows? So as a result, as punishment, and it's in the rules so I did it. As punishment for an interviewer who accidentally sends an innocent human for processing. I had to stamp the inside of my wrist. With the stamps in the game as an, as, well, not indelible, but as a tangible mark of my shame. Uh, now, granted, it, it washed off the next morning in the shower, but <laughs> I was able to have that, that lovely little visual reminder as to my grotesque failings. Next time, don't be so dodgy, Walker. Yeah, it's true. It's just, it is just a great game where you can start off because they give you sort of like the topic of the discussion and, the the other game we played where I was interviewer it was imagination and we you know you could go off on these great little tangents of you know what would you do if you were on a raft with you know you can make up these things right. to try to get around to certain like you said tells or stories or or feelings or and I I just didn't touch on the right angle I I don't want to say what my tell was supposed to be because it's kind of a spoiler once That's you right. know what one of the tells are that means that you'll be able to clearly identify or at least more easily identify whether someone or not is a robot. But I, I look, I derive a small degree of pride in how fleshed out I was able to make the narratives while leaving out those details. And I would like some degree of credit for having pulled one over on you as a patient robot. Well, earlier I rolled a d6, so you may have a cookie. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot to mention that earlier when I talked about things to come, because we're just... Right now, we have the baseline done for the Kickstarter for Roll a D6, Get a Cookie. Okay. It's almost there. Okay. First of all, it's called Roll a Six, Win a Cookie. Sorry, sorry. If you just get, if you just got a cookie for simply rolling the die of any result, that's not a game walker. Sorry, yes, sorry. This is a, this is a legit Roll game. Roll a Six, Get a Cookie. And I'm furthermore, I would just like to say, why is it that you and every random person on the guild thinks they get to join the dev team? This is my project. This is my intellectual property. Just because we're partners doesn't mean you get to horn in on my game design. This is an outrage. Well, I'm going to go for the more popular copy then. I'm going to say roll a four, get a co get a cookie. Oh, no, roll a four, get a chocolate bar. See, one in four chance. What are they going to get? A one in six chance for a cookie or one in four chance for a, for a chocolate bar? I'm going to blow you away. This game design is going to be the Yoko Ono of So Very Wrong About Games. <laughs> So that was Inhuman Conditions by Tommy Morangis and Corey O'Brien. And there are a whole bunch of variants involving multiplayer play and different kinds of scenarios. And I am curious to give it a shot because the system itself, the fundamental core system is kind of interesting. And what they've done with it is really interesting. And the components are beautiful. And if it can work reliably at, say, four players, that's a great number for social deduction because that's not an easy thing to do, generally speaking. I mean, there's a variant of the resistance at four players, and it works, but it's it's not ideal. So I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to exposing more human uh, more people <laughs> to inhuman conditions. So what what is it actually? Because on, on BoardGameGeek, it says it's web-published, which by definition means that you download it and print it. So what is it? what is the actual format of that people can get? It's listed as web published because there is a commitment to keep inhuman conditions open source forever. So you can download it for free. All the, all the components are freely available online. And if you want to pay for a premium version, which is the one we have with lovely little weird cards and a very, very strange box that is actually part of the setup and the actual stamps involved that if you are a murderous robot and manage to murder the investigator, you get to stamp however you like all over the form in your fit of violent rage. You can then send the money. It's the same publishing model that has been adopted by Tommy Morangis and others for Secret Hitler. And that's why it's listed as web published. That is Inhuman Conditions. 
Now on to First Class, which is a game that I had for quite a while. Only played it twice, but still love it. It's on Yukata. This is by Helmut Ole and put out by Zedmen Games. This is by the same uh, designer that did Russian Railroads. And the people that I played it with sort of after we played it, said they'd just rather play Russian Railroads, not even knowing that it was by the same designer. They said, okay, this game was great, but why don't we just play Russian Railroads instead? So what you're doing in first class is that you you have this huge display of cards, and you're drafting them, and you're doing the action immediately. And things that you're doing are building your rail cars out to the engine, or you're playing this little map thing up in the top left-hand corner where your little train's going to move along. Can I just note that, I, I don't know why, even though it's relatively abstract heroes, the fact that you have your engine way out there and you're building the cars from the rear forward to the engine just rubbed yeah, me the yeah, wrong and way. It's so, and it's because in, you're building two trains over here, but you're only moving one train over here. Yes. It, it's very odd. <laughs> but but that being said... Silly you, complaint. Yeah, it, it's... It, but it is it is legit. For... for for theme purposes, it, it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, you're upgrading your rail cars. They can be more, you can get them up to more points and you have to move your conductor along your rail cards, cars, cause you can only, you're only scoring, you know, as far as they've moved. Well, you don't know that the cars exist unless the conductors visited them. It's, it's true. Well, he checks back, right? He says, yeah, you know, that car's still here. We're good yes. to go. Yeah. We still have a train. I'm still on a train. Yes. Exactly. That is how trains work. Exactly. And so there's a little every second round. You get to score your little mini railroad at the top because if you, you know, pass certain stops, then they all have sort of like little bonus actions that you get to do. And then, you know, it's go six rounds long and it's fairly inoffensive, but I find very interesting and would play it at any time. That's why I bought it. It's just a very interesting little train, you know, train, much like Russian railroads. It's not like, you know, the 18XX, you know, build out this giant railroad and stock markety and it still gives you a little bit of feel of of train game but not with mm. all the overhead i would just like to say for the record i have nothing bad to say about trains please don't harass me about trains train. i love trains trains are fantastic trains are the best all 18xx games are the best games yes please leave me if, alone if you do have any complaints remember it's air canada it is remarkable how much First Class feels like a lighter version of Russian Railroads. And I've been meaning to try Russian Railroads again. I've been hearing a lot of good things from people I trust about some of the Russian Railroad expansions in particular, especially German Railroads. I've seen a lot of, of, of good good comments about that. And I enjoyed Russian Railroads. I thought, I thought it was nice. So it might be something worth revisiting. That was First Class. We got to play Argent the Consortium again. I had commented before that like Charlie Brown rushing for the football being held by Lucy, in this case Lucy is being played by Trey Chambers, the designer of Argent the Consortium, I was willing to hurdle myself at that football once one more time. This is the third copy of Argent the Consortium that I've had in my possession by some means or another in order to try it because I love the theme, I love the universe, and I love a lot of the mechanical elements of Argent the Consortium. And previous attempts when I played it, it was too much, too long, too much, felt a little unfocused, partially because of the length, and it didn't really sing to me. But people on the guild said, have you tried the short variant? At which point I said, ah, what do you mean short variant? The short variant is in summer break. And this is after my mind had been poisoned by Michael Walker talking about the beach episode. <laughs> Walker having talked about how every every anime and many non-anime always have a beach episode. Right around my- episode nine. <laughs> it always happens. <laughs> I didn't know it was right around episode nine. That's interesting. I should I should pay attention to that. And so I thought, oh well, this is just the beach episode of Argent the Consortium. No, no, no. It has a short version. It's one more round, but you have vastly fewer workers in the other round. You basically ramp up automatically. And so I'd wanted to give that particular version a try again because it had been you know a couple of years and like clockwork, every couple of years I want to try Argent again. What did you think of Argent Summer Break Walker? I've always liked Argent, almost all of it. All you have all these special workers, and they're not the special abilities are easy to remember. And they're not all over the top, nice and easy. They're all color coded, so you know what they do. The map can be different every time. All these different spaces to go to to get these various uh, resources in order to cast cool spells, and it all works together very nicely. There's not nothing you know too fiddly or anything. You get armor, you get you know items, you get stuff. But then all of these variants that we've played have this display of twelve. Flip down victory point conditions. No, sorry. Twelve. Two of them are flipped up. Ten of them are flipped down. For the whole game, there are ways, 
there are ways that you can look at them, but then you you have to remember you can you know f- look at them at any time, but still having to check out all of these ten different victory conditions that you're trying to get to, I seem I find just to be a bit much. The victory conditions for Argent the Consortium are indeed very controversial because, as you say, they are nominally hidden and. One of the things that I always do, and again, we'll talk more about this later during the topic, is I almost never use the recommended setups because that was one of the complaints I had after the first time I tried it. I played with a recommended setup and I found that the resource in question called Marks, no relation, that let you look at the hidden victory conditions were, they were just too parsimonious. There weren't enough in the system. They were too difficult to acquire. And if you make them too difficult to acquire, you're in a position where, well, either I can go get stuff and then stumble randomly into one of the victory conditions, or I can go get a mark, in which case I'll know why I'm losing. And that's not a good place to be. And oh, if- Well, that's where I was, right? I was just like, am I going to keep trying to get these marks out here and flip these, these, all of these cards up and then trying to remember what they all are, or am I just going to try to blank it and actually just have fun playing the game <laughs> as opposed to, you know, playing the memory game over here and, and fighting... It's one thing not knowing what they are and then constantly fighting over people for different victory conditions or just, you know, enjoying the game and just trying, like you said, blanket them all and hopefully hit one or two of them. (laughs) Okay, well, at that point, I think it's just a question of throughput for face-down cards. I agree with you that, broadly speaking, games should avoid having face-down cards where the users nominally should be can look at them at any time. This is true for complicated games like Arjun the Consortium. This is this is also true for simpler games where, you know, you might queue something for simultaneous play. People are going to forget what the face down card is. It's just inevitable. Uh, even in Cosmic Frog, if you have a, a special ability set aside for later, the special abilities are only active when they're face up. You can have them face down. You're going to have to look at it two or three times because you're going to forget. It's just, it's it's almost inevitable. I don't know what it is. I think it's something about putting a card face down triggers in your mind the notion that it's gone forever. Jay, and it's not just me. There was two of us at the table that were just putting marks on cards and not even looking at them. <sighs> I, do, that, I know, I know. That I'm, I think is a blame the player, not the game situation. But but that's the that's the player. I mean, same, there are other players like that. I'm it's not, true. It's true. I mean? It's true. How about this for for an alternate? You play with all of the victory conditions face up. You play with the marks, but the marks will break any ties instead of the influence order. Instead of the influence order, uh, well, and that, if there's the same devalu- number of marks, then you go to the influence order. Uh, that just devalues influence. I'm not sure what what effect that would have. I I would be interested in exploring whether there are good variants to minimize the degree of hidden information so as to satisfy specifically you. Um, <laughs> look, so long as you make marks easier to come by, so long as more of them enter the system. I think the game works great. If the room setup leads to too many par- leads to too much parsimony over the marks, then I don't think the game works very well at all. And then I think the victory conditions don't work very well. True. I think what we could have done as well in a lot of the cases, uh, a lot of the victory conditions had four marks on them. And in that case, we should have just taken the marks off and flipped them up. Oh, sure. Yeah. For usability issues. I didn't pay attention to that because I was the one who had all the marks out first. Yeah. Uh, by, this, by the end of the second round, even though we were playing with vastly fewer workers, I had marks on all but two of the victory conditions. And what I did was, and again, this, this is about how gamers approach information. We've talked about this in the context of, you know, Spirit Island, of Serial Confluence, other Euro games where you think that there's too much information overload and you don't like to engage with those systems. I'm, I seem to have a, a slightly greater willingness to just blinker myself and say, okay, past a certain extent, I'm not going to pay attention anymore. These are the things I'm focusing on. This is what I'm going to do. And I think there's a lot of room in Argent the Consortium between I'm going to put out marks and not look at the card and I'm going to memorize every consortium voter ever. To have that sort of, okay, I can win easily with four or five consortium voters, so I'm going to focus on these four or five. And in that space, I think Argent is great. I finally found a system where I think it sings. And let me talk a little bit about specifically about the Summer Break module, because it includes a couple of extra cards in, uh, I have to say, uh, tasteful beach attire. So it's not like, you know, the beach episode of, 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 of Argent. So there's that. And you start with two workers, and at the end of the first four rounds, you get a new worker. And what this does is it gives this lovely little sense of escalation. Because during the first couple rounds, the board seems wide open. And it's a question of, okay, 
Try to pick whatever is most valuable to you. And then as space gets tighter, that increases both the player interaction, it increases the confrontation, it increases the stakes, and it also increases the willingness of people to mess with you. Because famously, in Argent, there are many ways to mess with you. I have a spell that blasts your face off. I have a red mage that blasts your face off. I have this ability that says, oh, you don't get to go there. And, oh, I, I tap this ability to respond that says I get to go anywhere, and I blast your face off. There's a lot of blasting your face off, which, and I have to say, because it's about academic politics, that is my recollection of what it was like to be involved in academic infighting, which is one of the reasons why I like Arjun. I love the theme. And you don't get punished too badly when you get blasted in the face. You it's either, true. Either you had an item that let you just go somewhere else, and sometimes it's it's terrible because there's nothing left. But usually there's a spot there that gives you something that you want, or there's the graveyard or the the resting zone, which also gets you a benefit of some kind, which isn't always terrible. And if you want to pay the opportunity cost, there are usually other ways to protect yourself. Like, for example, if you find yourself constantly getting wounded, well, you should put your green mages who can't get wounded in the most valuable spots, etc., etc. So there's this evolving thrust and counter thrust. I love the way the spell system works. You research additional levels of spells. The level of the, the toy factor is very high in terms of what you get to do. And that part I've always liked. I just never felt that it cohered because it was going to be this two and a half hour, you know, solidly two and a half hour experience where it was tight and in your face right from the get go. And I just found it to be a little bit too much. But here, this was with setup and rules explanation, two hours, and we had confrontation, but it wasn't all confrontation all the time. I loved the pacing. I loved the sense of development. I think this is definitely the way to play. If I were introducing new players to Arjun who'd never done anything, I would absolutely start with Summer Break module. The fact that it's available uh, strictly as an expansion, I think, is a, is a bit of a shame. I think this should be in the core rulebook. I think the, the, quote, default way to play should be a variant. Uh, because this, this, I just think it's flatly better. And I feel so happy. That finally, after, you know, six years of experimenting with Arjun at various times, I can find a mode where I'm like, yes, this I will choose to play, this I will suggest, this I will put to the table and have a great time. Because after all, what this week has shown us, if nothing else, is that academic politics and running universities are certainly the most important and compelling themes for gaming. 100%. And that was Arjun the Consortium by Trey Chambers, published by Level 99 Games, specifically the Summer Break expansion. Lastly, we got to play a game called On the Edge of Too Many Keywords <laughs> by John Nephew and Jonathan Tweet and put out by Atlas Games. So there's a bit of a story behind this. There is. This is kind of our Shucks 2020. That's right. <laughs> in, Shucks, in Shucks 2019, back when conventions were a thing, uh, a listener g gifted us a couple of starter decks for On the Edge, and he wanted us to give it a try. And sure enough, I said I would, and then because I'm a terrible human being, promptly forgot about it for quite some time. And then he reminded us of the existence of On the Edge, and I'm like, yes, I'm very much in the mood to try another dead collectible game, because I actually like dead collectible games. Yeah, and it brought back a little bit of nostalgia. You know, you have the standard deck size box, and you open it up, has the little mini rule book, yep. and it has a, an entire game contained in this card deck size box. Absolutely. And I was very curious to see what Jonathan Tweet would bring to the format. Jonathan Tweet is a bit of a titan in role-playing circles. He is responsible for Ars Magica, a system for which I have a great deal of fondness. And he he's done a lot of work on a lot of other role-playing systems. He also did a lot of work on a lot of collectible games at roughly the same period and up to about like seven, eight years later. So he worked on Dreamblade. He worked on Hecatome. He worked on the D&D &D collectible miniatures game and the Star Wars collectible miniatures game, et cetera, et cetera. So I was very curious to see what, what Jonathan Tweet had done in 94, which was kind of the first wave of other games trying to cash in on, on the Magic the Gathering craze. You know, games like Wyvern and Netrunner and Jihad and all those other things are roughly that era. So what did you think of On the Edge, Walker? I think with more cards and a time to, you know, actually build a deck, I don't think it would be too terrible. But having just a starter, like we said, it played much like a, a Magic starter, which is mostly, uh, I don't want to say useless and pointless, but just seemed <laughs> to be all over the place, right? Yes. We had all sorts of, I at least for me, I had all sorts of resources that I needed certain keywords to trigger and those cards never came up. And I even have trouble getting characters even to come out at all. Yes. So there were actually, it was a bit pioneering from what I understand in the use of keywords in this way. And I think it, I agree with you. It, it overdid it in this format because it reminded me very much of what it was like in early days of CCGs. 
you could not play the game unless you aggressively deck built. And trying to see what it was like on the strength of a starter was largely a wasted experience. Because very much like Magic, it has resource-specific powers. You know, this resource will allow you to put out cards with this keyword. And this resource will allow you... Well, do you have this keyword in your hand or in your deck? Nope. Oh, well. <laughs> this is not going to do you any favors. Similarly, in Magic, you know, in, in a, the old-school Magic starter decks, you might have a whole bunch of blue land and no blue cards to, to play with. And an, another thing that I thought was a, a, a bit troubling was that the game is about generating points. And you can only launch one attack per round. Well, if I'm sitting on a whole bunch of characters in my hand that cost one to put out and generate one resource, because you can generate resources and points the same way through characters. It's the same, effectively the same currency. Well, on turn one, I can use one character to bring in another character who brings in another character who brings in another character who brings in another character. And now I've got this small army of piddly but resource-generating units, and you can only kill one at a time. Even if you have a military advantage, if you're not able to get out a large number of resource-generating characters to compete with my score advantage, well then, that's all she wrote. And that's kind of what happened, on top of the weird keyword nonsense. And so, I, in a constructed environment, I'm sure there are specific cards that one can levy in order to counter these things. Uh, but quite frankly, uh, if I wanted to construct decks, I'd still be playing Warhammer Underworlds. Uh, and... So I, 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 liked, I liked a lot of the systems. It's not about doing damage. It's more about generating resources, which sometimes is six of one, half a dozen the other. But in the context of a starter deck, I feel like I didn't see the game. Yeah, and I like the I like where you could you set up your units. Like you made this little grid and you could protect certain units. I thought that was a nice change. That, was, other, de that was definitely neat. But that was our experience with On the Edge by John Nephew and Jonathan Tweet. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, as pointed out to me by uh, several people on the internet, thank you all, Sacker Arms is going to be published by Level 99 Games. They're going to be localizing the Shinmaku edition with, the, they currently plan to kickstart three different boxes. They plan to support up to a certain number of characters, and I, it's going to be a little tricky, right? Because there are new characters constantly being released for the Japanese edition. They're now up to 20 characters. I have a fully up-to-date set as of today. Spent a lot of time with sleeves, which, of course, is a frustrating, expensive, and terrifying experience where you're almost always wrong. In many ways, it's like cracks about organized religion. But I, I would never seek to imply that sleevers of the world are driven more by religious fervor and a sense of faith and belief in false supernatural claims than an actual practical reason-based desire to protect an investment. That I, You would never do that. I would never in a million years. I only resort to sleeves when I have to for uh, inserts for translation purposes. Anyway, so the intention for Level 99 is to kickstart Sacker Arms in October. Who knows when it's going to get published? Sometime after Chinese New Year, of course. And I, look, I can't recommend Sacker Arms enough for two-player card games. People have been asking us to do a comparison of Battlecon, Exceed, and Sacker Arms, which are going to be the three sort of dueling card game things, which I, I don't necessarily accept as a sort of paradigm, because Sacker Arms is very different from Battlecon and Exceed. In point of fact, uh, Pixel Tactics is another two-player dueling card game that Level 99 puts out. If, if anything, that should go in the mix as well, in terms of comparisons. Anyway... I really like Sacker Arms. I've talked about it a lot of the podcast, and they're going to be localizing everything. So AEG, who put out, you know, a prior edition with a small number of characters and then didn't support it further, which, you know, whatever, it happens, is not the end of Sacker Arms in English. So look forward to that. And I will be doing a video comparison of Battlecon, the other level 99 dueling card games, uh, probably as an episode of All the Games You Like Are Bad sometime soon. So look for that. My one piece of news is Armada by Mantic. They're putting out this giant, fleety-type, boat battle miniature game. It looks very interesting. Uh, I really wish, in this day and age, unfortunately, there are so many ship games out there. So I can see why they don't want to publish the rules, because then people wouldn't buy any of their, these fantastic figures that they have, because there's so many other boats. That's a weak excuse. If you're going to have a miniatures game, publish the rules. I agree. I couldn't find them. <laughs> Sure, and I wouldn't. And the the, the you know the intro of a hundred dollars American was a little high, not seeing the rules in the first place. But mm. we'll see. It's coming out in November, so we'll take a look at it, or I'll try to take a look at it. I just love naval fighting games. There's a Man of War I had, and all, not the the very old one in the red box, not the second one they put out after that with plastic boats. But anyway, 
looking forward to seeing if it's any good. Hoping I'm, it will be. I'm still looking forward to A Billion Sons by Mike Hutchinson, but we'll see. There's going to be a Groundhog Day board game. We talked about licensed IP games not too long ago, and we talked about how Prospero Hall has a whole bunch of delightful stuff. It's not always great, but it's it's usually at least whimsical, and there's going to be a Groundhog Day board game. What I want to know, and it's going to be designed by Prospero Hall, what I want to know is that it's going to be faithful to the movie. Is there going to be a protracted segment in which you kill yourself over and over and over? That's what I want to know about this. I love the Groundhog Day movie. Make no mistake, I adore the Groundhog Day movie, but there are extended segments where the protagonist does terrible terrible things for a long time and that's part of the point of the movie yes i'm wondering if that will be represented in the board game probably not i'm looking forward to giving it a shot <laughs> one way or the other yeah on the topic of licensed stuff renegade game studios which is a publisher that's put out some pretty decent stuff will be partnering with hasbro to put out games based on gi joe transformers and my little pony and i have to say it's kind of strange that it's taken this long right with the intersection of nostalgia and commercializing middle-aged people's childhood it's kind of a wonder that it's taken this long the masters of the universe board game is going to be put up by simon soon there's all a bunch of scooby-doo games and now we're going to have gi joe transformers my little pony i have very strong opinions about transformers and so i'm very much looking forward to see what they do with them who knows what even era of Transformers they're going to do. I assume G1, but who knows? It's got to be better than uh, Transformers Risk, so... <laughs> sure. Finally for me, there is going to be a game that intersects with a very, very, very nerdy interest of mine, which is judicial politics. I have a little bit of an academic background in judicial politics, so this is, these are like the political science aspects of courts, especially Supreme Courts. And there's going to be a game called First Monday in October, which is a reference to when the term starts, the first Monday in October, which was also the title, uh, the First Mondays was the title of an excellent podcast on the American Supreme Court hosted by a friend of mine by the name of Dan Epps. Sadly, it is on permanent hiatus, and uh, so no more episodes. But it was a really good podcast. Not that I recommend anyone listen to any other podcasts than this. That would be a mistake. We will find you. Anyway. First Monday in October is going to be a board game about the evolution of the American Supreme Court since its inception all the way to the present day. All your favorites are going to be there. Walker, what are some of your favorites? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to say I, I looked into this. It's going to be packaged with DayQuil and some, <laughs> and some other, you know, medication to keep yep. you awake. And oh, look, I, sure can't, I can't even object. It's some coffee, maybe, and, uh, yeah, caffeine pills. It'll, it'll here's all the thing. be there. If you're a board gamer who has serious interest in the application of the Interstate Commerce Clause, let me tell you that the Interstate Commerce Clause is one of the four axes upon which the court's progress is going to be tracked. No, I'm seriously excited. I, I, this is going to be kickstarted uh, sometime this year from uh, Fort Circle Games, and it's a uh, first-time designer, Talia Rosen. I cannot wait. I really want this to be good, Walker. <laughs> this being said, I did see some some news on another political game. So it's got this very interesting sort of grid and you're going to be playing cards and and voting on things and and you're going to move this little marker around this diagram trying to push it into a certain you know section of the board that you wanted to go into and i thought that was going to be a very interesting mechanism I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out yeah so this game is called political animals and i'm looking forward to giving it a try and that is the news and why it doesn't matter on to our topic this week which Walker has decided to call the subliminal brainwash. Why don't you first, Walker, frame what the topic is about and then explain why you've decided to label it as such? There's two things. Is when someone explains the rules, they could uh, explain it in a way or give relevance to certain things that will skew your gameplay. Also, there are listening, uh, not listening, but watching playthroughs, like all these other streams or or watching people play the game and if they play it a certain way or emphasize certain things while they play it might skew how you play it the next time so specifically one of the things you're talking about is when explaining the game or when presenting the game to a new audience do you want to give things like strategy advice do you want to dwell on what has happened in previous playings in terms of oh this is the card you need to watch out for this is the combo that's really good or what have you and that that doesn't necessarily just apply to when you're starting the game it can also apply while the game is happening if a certain card comes up and it's interesting because as a game explainer as somebody who does i think it's fair to say the lion's share of, of game explanations this is very much uh an, an interesting question to me because 
for one thing, different people have different preferences as audiences, but it's also a value judgment that you as a game explainer have to make. And I find it's a a very personal one. And I find it interesting when I see other people approaching game explanations or game presentations in a way radically different from the way I do it. Agreed. Say if there's a whole list of actions and the order in which you explain them in, because as you get lower and lower down the list, people are slowly tuning out. So, <laughs> well, in, in, like if it's, if it's an overly complicated game, so they're just going to more internalize the first few actions, and maybe they're going to uh, centralize on those rather than the last, you know, four or five that you explained afterward. Well, I find that often is a, a function of how good the player aids are. If a game has good player aids, then what they're going to do is they're going to have, if there are a lot of available actions, they're going to list all the actions, and ideally, they would want to list some of the more important ones first. That was one of the problems we actually had with internalizing Roman Roll. I, I still maintain that Roman Roll is, is pretty decent, and the player aid is pretty good, but it just gets a little verbose, and it, you kind of get lost in the details, and just in terms of how it's present, it presents the different actions available. There isn't like a neat architectonic, and part of that is the design. Part of that is also the just the visual presentation of the player aid. So, yeah, my example would be Gaia Project, right? There's so many actions that you can do there, and then mm. there's that one strip along the bottom where you're going to uh, cycle your cycle your power, cycle your power, and or use the green cubes, right? And right. that's usually the last thing you go over, right? Because the cycling of the powers is a game, a whole game in on itself almost. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're leaving that to the end and they've already glossed over because you've, you know, fed so much information into them. So they don't actually start doing those things. I th- I've even seen this in, in, in gameplay. They don't, they don't actually start doing them until they see you do it. They'll say, Oh, how'd you do that? And they say, Oh, you can do that. And, and you know that you've explained it to them, right. but you know, that kind of thing. Okay, so let's talk about Gaia Project then. I think that's a really good example. So I think it's clear from the way you phrase this in terms of the subliminal brainwash that you generally oppose attempts to give detailed strategy advice to players when explaining a game. Yeah, just because sometimes uh, you might think something's overpowered or you might think a card's misworded or should be played a different way when it's just not. And if you if you say that while you're explaining it, then other people internalize that and, and think that as well without you know, playing it out themselves. I agree 100%. We, there, there's a reason why we emphasize in terms of games that we like and games that we don't like in terms of the quality of decision-making and the range of options available in decision-making. And as somebody presenting a game, you definitely don't want to prejudge or predetermine the way in which someone is going to explore the strategy space unless you feel you have to, which brings us back to the, the Gaia Project example. So if you're teaching someone Gaia Project and you know that cycling power can be very important, or using the green cubes can be very important, but you also know that it's not going to come up very often necessarily, and it's going to come at the tail end of a very detailed rules explanation. How do you therefore present the information? Like I said, well, like I said, that's how I usually do it. I present the whole other game, and then I sort of stop, and then I say, that's Guy Project, right? Blah, blah, blah. And then I said, now you're going to have this other thing that's going on throughout the game. You know, pause, make sure everyone's paying attention. You know, when people build by you, you're going to be cycling this power. It's going to help you do all these extra things that you can do and help you extend your turn so you can. And then these green cubes are going to give you lots of end game scoring. You can see how, you know, once you get a bunch of planets, you can start you know, hitting this over and over again, you got to make sure, you know, someone's not taking that space all the time near the end of the game. What I find also interesting in terms of how people respond is to player questions. So very often, especially in games where you have to make a, a gut judgment call pretty early on, this, this is especially true of auction games, for example, you're going to have new players asking you, well, what is this worth? Or how do I do this thing? Or what's the priority here? And I find that it's important to acknowledge that that's what they're looking for. And and the response of a complete stonewall and a shrug and say, well, that's your job to figure out is inappropriate. Now, to a certain extent, I, I just as a, as a minor caveat to that, I do often encounter, and I find this marginally frustrating, you know, a tile might come up and say, oh, do I want this tile? It's like, yeah, yeah that's probably pretty good for, for, for your situation. And then they might say, but it's really expensive and I don't have the money. At that point, I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, it's a game. You have to like, okay, there's a trade-off involved. Like, you have to figure out whether it's worth it. I've said it's really good. I've confirmed your question. Now it's your turn. Go forth and sin no more. So if if somebody asks for strategy advice, what I try to do as much as possible, and sometimes this is difficult, is I don't want to dwell too much, again, on the way that I approach the game. Because I don't want to prejudge or narrow or, or make, make clear that the game that we're playing can only be played the way that I play. So, for example, when I play Raw, I don't tend to go heavy into Monuments. 
just as a general rule. I, I sometimes do. I sometimes end up in that position, but it's not usually my focus. It's not what I like to do. And so very often I'm left with, well, how much is this monument worth? And what I try to do as much as possible is give two answers. First is, well, I don't value monuments very much, but I see other people do very well with them. You might call that being wishy-washy, or maybe that's just not giving much guidance. But again, I think it's important because you want to let people navigate the game for themselves. I think Gugong hits this in two ways. One, that maybe we or I personally am very guilty of it, where we say Jade is a lie. And it might not be the case. Just because we think Jade's a lie doesn't mean that other people might figure out that, you know, find a strategy that makes Jade work. The other example is is the advisor that moves up that track you might emphasize that too heavily how important it is to get that to the end even though you know it's impossible for you to win the game if you don't get him to the end but more or less i've don't think i've ever seen it never get up to the top so it does it usually happens all the time so maybe you just have to make sure you emphasize that as well the fact that don't worry about it too bad it's never happened before it's going to more than likely advance to the top before the end of the game. That, I think, is actually a counterexample. If I were explaining Gugong, Gugong is one of those games that you explain and I don't. But were I explaining Gugong to a new user, I, of course, would, would, would explain the rule. But the rule by itself, that's one of those examples where it might lead them to prejudge in a bad way. And so I think there you have to give a little bit of a broader context. Because if you just say, if the advisor hasn't hit the last space, you necessarily lose. I think that by itself will lead people to overvalue the track and try to overcommit. That's because what I'm they're saying. Too nervous. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Oh, okay. But but this is an example of not letting the rule speak for itself. This is an example yeah. of, of of I think where giving a little bit of broader context actually helps people explore the game state for themselves better than just explaining the rule. Agreed. And then when you explain it and you might have had a bad experience or you might be playing with someone else that has also played it before. Don't say, okay, and this is the strategy that this person usually use. You know, this is this person's student, and this is this person's professor. You know, you shouldn't do that sort of thing. You know, those types of things. Just make sure that, you know, it's a, a, a new experience every time. Yeah, if there is a tricky interaction where the text on a card or the text of an effect is somewhat misleading, I'll absolutely clarify. It's like, oh, by the way, the way that actually works is as follows. That's one thing. But I find just dovetailing what you were talking about, I find that people are often very guilty of fighting the last war. So, for example, again, returning to Gugong or Gaia Project or whatever, if somebody makes a very good go of it and plays plays with a certain faction or a certain special power or a, sp- a certain activation and they run away with the game, I think it's absolutely a mistake to assume that that's necessarily a feature of the game long term. It probably could have been an artifact of that given playing, especially if it's a game you like. If it's a game that seems obviously imbalanced, whatever, you're probably not going to come back to it anyway. But selling, telling a new player, regaling them with the story, it's like, oh, last time Dewey played with Red, and Red's power is amazing, and it does all these following things. It's like, well, guess what? You have now indelibly colored the experience that this player is going to have of the game, regardless of what happens. Exactly. I think ultimately what it's about is actually more the perception of openness than openness itself. And the reason why I stress this is because returning back to my discussions of Spirit Island, the game explainer or the game host already has many, many choices to to exert in many cases before the game even starts. Because you could choose the scenario if the game is scenario-driven. You might be selecting what variants to play with. You might be determining the framing or what factions are in play. You might have already called the deck if you're so inclined. You might have included expansions when there weren't necessarily expansions. Like, for example, if I'm going to be introducing Argent to somebody going forward, I'm going to be doing it with the Summer Break expansion. Now, this is me exerting a lot of control over what their first exposure to the game is going to be, but it all happens on the back end, and they don't necessarily see it that way, in the same way. On the other hand, if I set up a game of Argent and say, well, look, this spell, this spell completely dominated our last playing. This one over here, this spell, super consequential. Keep your eye on this spell. That's a little different. Even though it might, in point of fact, be less disruptive or less putting your hands on the game situation and controlling the outcome than those other background decisions, like what rooms to put out or what scenario to play, it feels more limiting. And so the effect on the player experience is worse. Yeah, the the unique game... The unique feel of that particular game would be changed. Absolutely. 
this actually reminds me a little bit of people's attitudes towards spoilers because there's some rather interesting cognitive psychology going on about spoilers. Also, uh, trigger warnings for what it's worth. There are a lot of people who report a violent antipathy towards spoilers. I am one of them. And they will get very upset if they are spoiled. This is about media. But there have been some preliminary studies, nothing nothing like laboratory conditions or what have you, that people who are spoilered actually enjoy the thing more, even if they say they hate spoilers. There's this weird disconnect that sometimes happens with stated preferences and actual preferences. And this, I think, dovetails with what I'm talking about. I don't want someone exerting control about how I experience the game, but I nonetheless recognize that they automatically do by virtue of the way that it's presented before the rules explanation even starts. So it's more about the perception than the actual openness. Yeah, it's, it's even right down to like how they present the rules. Like if they're in a good mood or if they just offhandedly, you know, okay, let's, you know, just, we're just going to, we're just going to start playing and I'll, I'll tell you as we go. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. the whole framing of how the game's laid out is going to manipulate how the game is played. So there are two bits of framing that I'd just like to call out. Cause I, again, I agree with you. I don't like excessive strategy notes. I don't like watching playthroughs where the people doing the playthrough want to tell you how the game is played. I want to know how the game is played, but I don't want to know how the game is played. If you catch my subtle nuance. There's two bits of framing that I absolutely detest. Uh, one of them is because it's incredibly dismissive and haughty. And that is, and, I, and I, I've seen this before, anytime a game comes up, there might be that one person in the game group who says, oh, that game, you do X and you do Y and then you win. Yeah. You've encountered this person? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you just, you know, you just totally, you know, in the first phase, you just get a whole bunch of money. In the second phase, you just do this and this, and then yeah. you get all the points and you're good. Yes, this is this is the person who has solved every game they've ever played and very much wants to tell you about it. <laughs> I find that insufferable. One that I find even worse, though, and it's often done intended as a compliment, is before the game starts, and this isn't game specific, this is just more generally specific, someone is identified as the one who is likely to win. Yes. I remember once the owner-operator of Randolph Publidic in Montreal. I was visiting, he's a friend of mine, and I was sitting down to play Dominion shortly after it was released. And I was sitting down with a bunch of strangers. He knew every, he knew everyone there. He's that kind of guy. Joel knows everybody. He probably knows you too. You don't even know it. And I was sitting down with three strangers to play Dominion. And before the game started, he points to me and he says, this guy, watch out for this guy. And I'm like, great. <laughs> but what kind of player interaction is there in Dominion, really? Okay, good point. But <laughs> my my but point my point stands. Like I was, I was going to have some points, but then you said Dominion. Let's say it was a <laughs> let's, say, let's say it was a game where they can actually <laughs> stop you or or go against you. Fair enough. I'm wondering is that because I wanted to have another discussion at a later time. Is if that is that part of 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 strategy, like outside the game strategy? Oh boy! Like if it is, I don't like it. Having them all focus on you, like he's already got a free pass. He wasn't playing. I know, but. No, this he is, just this dropped is, that this bomb is, and this left. Is, this is another hypothetical, you know. Yeah, it's like a war game, and you know, he says, "Okay, watch it." And now, guy. and now we're going to play the game where Walker always wins. Exactly. That oh, geez. So I've seen that happen, and again, usually it's meant as kind of a compliment, and or it's meant to make the new player feel at ease, like there's no pressure. I find that it has two effects. Number one, it delegitimizes your victory if you end up winning. It's like, oh, okay, that was the expected result. He was going to win anyway. Yeah, which is not cool. Even worse is precisely all these things we've been talking about. It's trying to lay your hands on the situation and trying to guide players' experiences. Or not even the attempt, but it will have that effect. And in a case where there's lots of player interaction, you are indelibly going to color what's going to happen. Like, for example, just to, just, just to tie this together, this is gesturing towards game metas, you know, metas surrounding certain games. Uh, I, I heard it expressed once by Dr. Stallone that if there's a new game being played and he has to choose to target somebody, he is going to choose to target me. Because of a whole bunch of exogenous factors. And I was upset when I first heard him declare <laughs> that. It made a lot of moves make more sense in hindsight. I started looking, thinking back to other games I played with Dr. Stallone. Oh, so that's why you did that. And again, to a certain extent, that's inevitable. These background considerations creep in. But I'm in favor of, wherever possible, framing games so as to minimize the overt framing or the overt influence of those factors. So yes, you have to pick the scenario, you have to pick what's going to be set up, you have to pick to, what to play, etc., etc. But don't emphasize it. Try to give people at least the illusion of approaching a game with an open mind, because that, I think, is going to lead to better play experiences. Yeah, that, that they are totally under control, and you're not guiding them down a certain path. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, dice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.